I think all of us understand. Okay, can everybody take out the done? Or, yeah, the done collection. We'll do a hymn to Christ at the author's last going into Germany. Everybody have a copy of Boethius? I hope so. Oh, can I have it? Does anybody have a copy of Boethius? Does everybody? Does anybody not have a copy? Oh, it's okay. Can I bring it next time? Sure. Okay. That's awesome. Can you go get the box of Boethius? Fred. Fred. I'm asking for donations for this. This is a, a good study guide. So if you could all chip in. Um, it's not just for the paper, it's a pretty, I think it's a pretty good study guide on Boethius, so. Suzanne just went to get the, the box of, at this point, can, can everybody, uh, yeah, could, if, give, when she comes back, can you give her your donations? It would be um, greatly appreciated. At this point, you should have Boethius and Chaucer. Does everybody have Chaucer? Okay. The books, sorry? Oh, yeah. The books. Right. Yeah. Um, let's see, I'm getting confused. Okay, everybody's good. Next week we're starting Boethius. Two weeks, that's all. And after those two weeks we're starting Chaucer. We'll do the Knight's Tale. If there's enough people around to warrant another week, we will do the Knight's Tale and, and do Shakespeare. The um, Midsummer Night's Dream, the Theseus story. And then we break, as you know, for summer. We'll come back and pick up Chaucer in the fall. And honestly, I can't even remember what we're going to do. Chaucer, maybe Scarlet Letter, I'm not sure. But we're moving towards Brothers Karamazov. I mean, finally, that's what we were going to do, and that's um, where I want to go. So, But at least right now, we've got Boethius and Chaucer to do. Okay. I think um, Chaucer will take a little bit of time in the fall. I don't, I don't want to do all of Chaucer. I'm going to pick probably five or six tales, so it won't be a lot of work. Um, but, and I think you'll enjoy him. He's, he's just funny. Um, ooh, Doc, here. Did you get um, 
Are there, is there a choice here? Okay. Yeah. On, on Amazon Prime, if you have that, uh, they have a uh, Chaucer kind of overview, documentary. Um, it's not as good as I hoped. It's more about the English history of the time of Chaucer. And it spends time on Chaucer, but not as much as I thought it would. To buy it? It's a book? No, it's it's a video. A video film. Amazon Prime, you can watch it. Oh, watch it, yeah. It's called Trossa. Oh, it is called. But it deals most a lot with the history of England at that time. Right. King Edward and Dark Prince and. Yeah, a lot going on. And all that stuff. It spent a lot of time on all that historical stuff. Of course, he was involved there a little bit in that too. Okay, everybody have the poem? It's the Dan, a, a hymn to Christ. <coughs> it's the it's a selection of lyrics. It's in that little packet, that collection of Dan poems. <coughs> a hymn to Christ at the author's last going into Jericho. Remember, Dunn was one of that group of poets that we know as metaphysical poets, and the, the reason they have that tag is that all of them look back to a, a Catholic Middle Ages, and most, all, most of all, scholasticism. Because when you look back at the Catholic Middle Ages, what you become aware of is that the Middle Ages were rich in philosophy. Great, great philosophers, um, Thomas Scotus, the, the, just the list goes on. Um, Bonaventure, just a great number, and all of them went to being. They, they all tackled metaphysical problems, um, so they they were aware of being, the being, the ontology, the being of things in a way that we're not today. We are so empirical. Our prejudices are so materialistic that we think the the Everything stops with matter. The, the <coughs> scholastics didn't. So the scholastic tradition was um, rich with this sense of analogies between things. We get a hint of that. Those of you who did um, Melville's Moby Dick, you know that Ishmael had a sense of being, that he saw analogies everywhere. Almost every one of his chapters when he's looking at something, a whale, a skeleton, it didn't matter. He saw analogies between what was physically present to him and other levels of meaning. So the Middle Ages were rich with that. But when Dunn was writing, the Copernican Revolution had already taken place. Science had, um, had um, taken the place of theology and poetry as the highest kind of knowledge. Um, so it, it's a time of radically questioning everything in the world then. But that group of poets writing then um, had this strong sense of being to things, the metaphysics of things. So Dunn, he, in a, one poem, for instance, he uses the, uh, the twin legs of a compass as an analogy to talk about love. Or um, he'd, he'd talk about um, lovers under noon when what he was thinking about wasn't just love, lovers at noontime, but lovers standing in the, under the light of being. So 
there's a metaphysical dimension to so much of what he does that's made explicit and technical because of the language that he uses that separates that group from all other poets. And if you know anything about poetry, you know that since then, poetry's become more and more rooted in the <laughs> physical world, less and less concerned with the metaphysical dimension. So we're reading, when done, we're reading a poet who is right on that threshold between a, a Catholic Europe, Middle Ages, looking back, and a modern world looking forward. It makes his language a little bit difficult, but if you are patient and work with you, you'll see one of the richest poets in the English language. He's, he's just so good. <clears throat> a hymn to Christ. So remember, when he talks about this journey going westward, um, leaving home, it's, it's a, a journey into darkness. The darkness is, it's, it's what Eliot, by the way, Eliot, one of Eliot's favorite, most influential poets was Dunn. Dante and Dunn were at the center of Eliot's life. Um, Eliot did a major series on the metaphysical poets, and Dunn was a major influence in his life. So when he talks about darkness, Dunn does, he's, he doesn't mean just the darkness of night. He's talking about the apophatic, enter, entering into those things about which we know very little. We enter into something dark and discover ourselves there in ways that we can't when we don't go there. So be aware of, of metaphors and similes and symbols here. A hymn to Christ. <clears throat> Even the ship itself. In what torn ship soever I embark, that ship shall be my emblem of thy ark. What sea soever swallow me, that flood shall be to me an emblem of thy blood. Though thou with clouds of anger do disguise thy face, yet through that mask I know those eyes, which though they turn away sometimes, they never will despise. I sacrifice this island unto thee and all whom I love there and who loved me. When I have put our sea twixt them and me, put thou thy seas betwixt my sins and thee. As the tree sap doth seek the roots below, in winter, in my winter now I go, where none but thee, the eternal root of true love, I may know. Looking forward to his death, that darkness. Nor thou nor thy religious does control the amorousness of a harmonious soul, but thou wouldst have that love thyself, as thou art jealous, Lord, so I am jealous now. Thou lovest not till from loving more thou free my soul. Whoever gives takes liberty. Oh, if thou carest not whom I love, alas, thou lovest not me. Seal then this bill of my divorce to all on whom those fainter beams of love did fall. Marry those loves which in you scattered be on fame, wit, hopes, false mistresses to thee. Churches are best for prayer that have least light. To see God only, I go out of sight. And to escape stormy days, I choose an everlasting night. This is like a prelude to the mystics entering into the darkness, the, the void. Um, Marry those loves which in you scattered be on fame, wit, hopes, false mistresses. 
remember the worldliness that Dante was trying to shed in the Divine Comedy. You know, the um, Saint Thomas. I can't remember the the four basic pleasures that most men seek. I'm probably not going to get this right. Wealth, fame, power. Wealth, fame, power. Mm, pleasure. Thomas says those are the four goods, all goods. The danger is that most men make them more important than God. And we all know the results of them. When we make any of those too good, they, they're like demons. I mean, they take hold of us. So, um, <clears throat> Seal then this bill of my divorce to all on whom those fainter beams of love did fall. Marry those loves which in you scattered be on fame, wit, hopes, false mistresses. He loved those things too much. Um, in place of God. Churches are best for prayers that have least light. To see God only, I go out of sight. And to escape stormy days, I choose an everlasting night. Um, preparing himself for death and all that follows after. Okay. Um, see if I can do some justice to this. We started the course um, with my asking everybody here to think very seriously about belief. And I said, um, take a look at somebody who's Muslim, take a look at somebody who's Jewish, take a look at somebody who's Christian, who hold their beliefs very, very intently, seriously, and try to convince them to change their beliefs. Somebody who's Muslim is not going to do it. Somebody who's Jewish is not going to do it. Somebody who's Christian. So something's wrong. Um, either truth is relative, and we can make whatever we want, or um, something happened to throw things off. You, because you know the claims that, um, <coughs> that um, Christ fulfilled all the prophecies and everything that was said about the Messiah to come, so he brought to fulfillment the whole Jewish tradition. But a large, a large part of the Jewish tradition rejected him, so it goes forward. It continues as Judaism today. Judaism and, and um, Islam both belong under the law. <coughs> they both go back to Abraham and Ishmael. Ishmael is the founder of Islam. Or, the roots of um, Muhammad go back to Ishmael. So you've got two religions that are still basically under the law and Christianity, um, the claims to have fulfilled the law. Those are the, um, those are the major religions and fundamental differences between them. <clears throat> and then we, um, we looked at the, um, the events that were taking place in Milton's time during the Reformation uh, we start. We started with Milton. I wanted to end with Dante, even though Dante comes before Milton, and then we went forward to Dante. In both instances, in both periods, we see both poets dealing with major corruptions. Um, people are killing each other because of their religious beliefs. So we think of that as something maybe peculiar to Islam in our day, with with radical um, aspects of Islam, but. Um, 
Christians were involved in killing each other when they shared the same faith. So during Dante's time, we already know that the, the, the great conflict that defined what everybody did then, nobody could escape it. If you look at the Divine Comedy, there's, there, I think there are very few cantos in which somebody hasn't been involved in a, in a conflict between the Ghibellines and the Guelphs or between the Whites and the Blacks. The Ghibellines, you remember, identified with the, their, the source of power and authority with the Emperor. The Guelphs with the Pope. And um, people went to war over those differences. They were both Christians, largely, um, and killed each other. The Guelphs divided down into the Whites and Blacks. The Whites believed that they should have complete independence of the Papacy. The Blacks didn't. And White and Blacks went to war and killed each other. Dante is critical of um, the Papacy, the Church, throughout the Divine Comedy. Um, it, th there's almost no l level in the Paradiso that doesn't contain a denunciation of the Church and its corruptions. The wealth, the priests getting fat, lazy, um, the, the way in which the Pope um, has made alliances with other peoples uh, to betray his office. Um, he puts numerous popes in hell. So. And we know that just about the time that Dante writes, I think he starts writing the Commedia in 13... Remember, the, the, the Commedia is presented as taking place, I believe, in 1302 or 3. Dante doesn't start writing until 1308. It's one of the reasons he can talk about what's going on in terms of prophecies. He keeps coming across characters that, that give hints that something's going to happen. Well, the reason he can do that is because it's already happened. Um, <clears throat> he doesn't start writing until 1308, and it's just about that time um, that the Babylonian, what we know as the Babylonian captivity took place, that the, um, the sea was moved from Rome to France um, for a variety of reasons, um, with, with all of the lavish corruptions in the French court. And some year, Dante won't be alive when it happens, but some years after that, um, the, what's called the Great Schism takes place, that the um, French kings actually appoint a pope, um, so the two popes coexist, one in Rome and one in France at the same time. I can't remember, that, that went on for generations, that schism. So the church is in trouble. Um, but it, its being in trouble didn't keep Dante from holding to his faith. He, he's absolutely dedicated to the, um, the, the church. But we get these denunciations all the time. People are killing each other. That's how bad it is. In the Reformation, we know that people, Christians, were killing each other again. Um, that the, the Scots Presbyterians um, wanted to take power, they wanted to defeat the king, the king wanted to defeat the Presbyterians. Both sides wanted to defeat the other in order to make the other conform to their religious beliefs. Because they, they believed that the others, the Presbyterians believed that the Anglicans were too Catholic, that they didn't go far enough in their reforms. The Anglicans <coughs> believed that the um, Presbyterians had gone too far. Um, What's partly at issue there are just not religious beliefs, but class differences, because the Anglicans tended to be high church, 
They identified with the bishops and the aristocracy. The Presbyterians tended to identify with the poor, the outcasts, the marginalized. Um, we also know that um, just, before, just before Milton wrote that uh, when Henry, this is a century earlier, when Henry um, declared himself to be the head of the church, um, he disenfranchised Catholics and Puritans. Um, the, the Puritans distinguished themselves from the Anglicans because, as I said, they didn't think the Anglicans had gone far enough. They wanted a much purer church. The Puritans went north to the Netherlands and to establish a, a church along the model of Calvin. And they were there, I think, for a year and then finally left for America. And we, that's our founding um, when they come here, the Puritans in New England. Um, but, um, but England is torn apart by class and religious di divisions. People, Christians are killing each other for the sake of their beliefs. The interesting thing, we, we talked about this, is that we, we, they, we enter a period then in England in which people use political power to force a person to conform to his beliefs. Henry did that. Um, the Presbyterians did that when they, when they executed the king and took control. So in both periods, um, Milton and Dante are both dealing with horrible church corruptions. Milton had great hopes for the Presbyterian cause. He believed that if the Presbyterian cause, he believed that it would succeed under Cromwell. It didn't. And when he saw what happened, his words were, Catholics writ large, that the Presbyterians had become like the Catholics once they gained power. He became absolutely disillusioned, pulled out from religion altogether. His, his position was that the individual soul makes of himself his own religion. So the historical circumstances for each poet are pretty, pretty bleak. Um, we know that shortly after the Babylonian captivity and um, the, the great schism, that, the, that the, the, the Renaissance begins in Italy, and you've got all the uh, Borgia popes with all the wealth and the nepotism and the intermarriage and the selling of indulgences and passing on uh, properties, and so the corruption gets even worse. It, it, in fact, it even leads to um, the Reformation thinkers and their hatred of Catholicism because of the corruption they're seeing. So the, 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 circum, the circumstances are bleak for both poets. We've talked about each of the poets self-consciously establishing himself in the epic tradition. Um, Dante sees himself as writing an epic in the, in the tradition of Homer and Virgil, consciously. And Stasius, remember, he, he meets Stasius in the Purgatory. Stasius was an epic writer, a Roman poet. He self-consciously identifies himself with the poets. He even said to the committee, he hopes one day to get the laurel crown in Florence. It'll never happen because he'll never, he'll never be able to go back. But he longed for that laurel crown, which was the crown given to great epic in acknowledgement of the great work that epic poets did. The word epos, remember we've talked about it, means 
um, word, divine word. In the ancient epics, every epic poet saw himself um, working with a goddess to reveal things about men that only goddesses could know, only, only the divine. He was going to write a subject um, that, that asked for powers greater than men had because he was going to talk about the ways the gods intervened in the affairs of men. So every epic poet asks for help from a goddess to reveal divine matters. Dante's not doing anything differently. He, he doesn't appeal to um, Calliope, to a, a goddess to begin with, but we know as we move through the epic that he sees that epic as prophetic, consciously. People say things to him, and when he finally um, gets to the, the, the level of Mars, where he meets his great-great-grandfather, Cacciaguida makes clear that his calling is to write the, the poem as prophecy. Um, so he establishes himself in the epic tradition, but he also breaks from the epic past because he knows something the ancient pagans didn't. He knows that Christ came into the world to save the world. So his epic is deeply Christian. He's not going to appeal to an ancient god. What he does is carry that past forward. In a sense, he baptizes it. It's all carried forward and transformed by his Christian vision. Um, one of the major changes he makes is that he's not talking about a great warrior, Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas. The ideal of the ancient world for a man was to have the courage to face death um, and survive it. So the, the heroes of the ancient epic were all very warrior-like. That's the heroic ideal. The Christian ideal up till Dante takes its bearings from the pagan world. The ideal for the Christian Middle Ages was a Christian knight. Chaucer is going to make that clear in the Canterbury Tales. He's the first story. That's not an accident. The ideal was of a man who had the courage to face dangers, evils, usually for his lord, for King Arthur, or his mistress, but always in a spirit of self-giving. So there was nothing of the ego that Christians would have associated with the pagan heroes. It was an act of self-giving like Christ. So um, what Dante does, so in the Middle Ages, the ideal for Christianity was a knight, a man who had the courage of the ancient epics, but who had the spirit of Christ, would be willing to give his life for his Lord or his beloved. Dante doesn't take a knight, King Arthur, Galahad, Lancelot, he doesn't take a knight for his ideal, he takes himself. And you know how, he, how radically he changes things. Um, the reason for that, sorry, I've got a cold, sorry. The reason for that is he's got Aristotle and St. Thomas behind him. Um, Homer didn't, Virgil didn't. Um, and his whole understanding of man radically changes from what it was for the pagan epics, epic, or epic writers. He takes himself as the hero because he thinks, um, he sees himself as um, every man, and he thinks the most important thing for every man in life is learning. It's not overcoming physical obstacles, dangers from other men. Man was meant to learn. 
Um, it's fundamental to his nature. So he radically, radically changes the image of the epic hero. Um, the whole epic quest, if we look at a quest as a battle, and it is, Dante's got to overcome his own damnation. You know that he sets out, he's going to be damned. He's going to have to look at evil, he's going to have to go into hell, he's going to have to look at suffering everywhere. It's an epic battle. It's a real struggle. Um, he, he cowers a lot. He wants to write, doesn't want to do it. He passes out several times. Um, so his, his image of the epic hero is radically different from what it was in the ancient world. It's, it's much closer to an ordinary man. And, and in that sense, it's more Catholic. It represents mankind more universally. So he takes himself as the epic hero. And what we see is not a great heroic man, but a very ordinary man. Milton, um, like Dante, self-consciously sets himself in the epic tradition. He had entertained doing an epic for most of his adult life, thought about doing one on the um, chivalric knights, um, and decided against doing it, and as you know, he took on the fall. The great thing that Milton did by doing that is um, he let the cat out of the bag. I've said it before. He made clear what all the epic, all the ancient epics assumed but could never see, that the cause of all the disorders in the ancient world was the fall. So even though every epic is about a refounding, a dealing with a disorder, the Iliad with honor, the um, Aeneid or the Odyssey with marriage, with um, Aeneid, with cities, each one of them were looking at these fundamental disorders to, the, to mankind. Milton goes back to the causes of them all. He goes back to Genesis and the fall, and he makes it clear that the source of all our problems is this original estrangement between man and God, that our original sin was to disobey him, and all other sins come from there. So that's the, the great contribution of Paradise Lost. Milton, like Dante, also changes the epic hero. Um, and there's, there's the most, one of the most important things to take from Milton is this. Like Dante, he, he sets himself in the epic tradition. He also changes the epic hero and the way we look at the world. Because as a Protestant, he sees the entire world as corrupt, black. <clears throat> take a look at Dante. That's not true for Dante. Dante sees the world as good. The world is not depraved to Dante. When he goes up to heaven, there's no sense of depravity in anything in the world. The world has fallen because it's removed from God, but that's because humans are sinful. Um, when they go up the heavens and up purgatory, <laughs> Virgil and Beatrice both make clear to Dante that everything is intelligible. Everything has meaning. There's a goodness everywhere in the world. Milton believed that the effects of the fall were complete, that, that man was depraved. The, the only way he could come out of his depravity was through the grace of God. So we've talked about that. Remember, um, at the very outset of the Divine Comedy, when Dante goes into hell, the first level is called the virtuous pagans. They're not there because they did anything evil. They're good men. Um, the dim light 
in that castle that is the landscape then, remember, is in some way symbolic of the fact that they do not, they live without faith, hope, and charity. Because if they had those supernatural virtues, their lives would be enlivened, enlightened. But they're not. So they're virtuous. What Dante makes clear is that even if they're virtuous, their virtue won't get them to heaven because heaven's a supernatural condition. So there's a radical difference between the two men on that. Milton believed as a Protestant that all men were depraved. The, the effects of the fall were complete. The only way out of that depravity was through grace in God. Now what, one, of the, one of the effects that has on the way that he envisions the world is he makes Satan the epic hero. And we know from the beginning of the Paradise Lost that it begins, remember, with the, um, the fallen angels having been forced out of hell and they're in the burning lake. That's how the Paradise Lost begins. We saw that every one of those angels was the archetype for the Homeric gods. So if we go back to Homer or Virgil, the gods are good. I mean, they quarrel and they do bad things, but they're not depraved. Zeus is good. Athena's wisdom. She's an image of wisdom. She's the goddess for both Achilles and, um, and Odysseus. And Aphrodite, remember the goddess of love, is Aeneas's goddess. She's the one who looks after him. So for both those ancient pagan ep um, poets, there, there's an evil, a depravity present in the world, but it's not complete. It's not extensive. There's a, there's a goodness in nature. And the gods partly image it. For Milton, that's not so. For Milton, it's, it's evil, it's corrupt. And even though we see um, that Satan and the other fallen angels will come to nothing, their whole enterprise will be futile. <coughs> the last image we have of them is crumbling into dust, turning into lizards and serpents. So we see that even, even if their effort to undermine God is futile, they still attract our attention. There are lots of critics who are, I, we went through this when, I, when we were doing Paradise Lost, I read from some modern critics. There are lots of modern critics who are more ready to identify with Satan than with Christ. Because Christ is such a weak figure in Paradise Lost. Just, there's nothing attractive about him at all. Or the cross. Satan is captivating. He holds people's attention. There are lots of critics who take the position that they're, they identify far more with Satan because um, they can justify what he does because the God that he's going up against is such a taskmaster. The reason for creating um, the world and Adam and Eve is spite. It's so that Satan can't win. So Milton's God is not a very attractive God. And we talked about even the Trinity, that the God, you know, the Son. And, there's an Aryan aspect of, to Milton that... The, the son doesn't seem to be one with the father. There's, there's just so many problems with Milton. But um, a fundamental difference is that Milton starts with this Satan figure who sometimes compels our attraction because there are times when he seems like he's going to turn. He asks for sympathy from us as if he's um, feeling remorse for what he did, that he should be more grateful. Um, I, I think all of that's conscious on Milton's part. He's, he's, come, he's trying to draw us in because what Milton's attempting to do is undermine the epic tradition to show that these epic heroes, that so many people are these pagan heroes, Odysseus, Achilles, Aeneas, 
we're not as good as they seem, that man's fallen. So it's why so many people said that Milton is of the devil's party without knowing it. So there's this very radical, there's a radical difference between the two men, the way they present the epic, and the way they look at the epic hero. Okay. Um, one last thing. This is just by way of going back to all that we looked at when we looked at the Reformation. <clears throat> when, we, when we looked at the Reformation, we saw that the greatest concern for all of the reformers was the corruption of the Catholic Church. They hated it. Wycliffe was greatly disturbed by it. Luther hated the Catholic Church. So did Calvin. They both thought it was the Antichrist. Um, and what they did was radically alter the fundamental dogma, dogmas of the church. They, they, they turned away from the authority of the church in the church itself and in the papacy. And they did away with the sacraments by and large. So um, they, they replaced the fundamental position of obedience in the Catholic Church to the Pope, to Christ, to the church itself with um, the private will. That for Luther and Calvin, the most important thing for any person was his private will, that private experience with God. And it was on the basis of that that the Lutheran church and breaks really in um, the grounds for the Anglican turn are a little bit different, but both of them um, turn away from the Catholic church. Um, say here. Two just brief comments. One is both Milton and Dante um, face corruptions. Okay? Corruptions were rife in both periods. Um, the, the, one of the serious questions that anybody looking at those two periods has to ask is do, do corruptions ever justify altering the essential dogmas of the church? And that's, that, to me, is one of the most serious questions to take away from all of this. We know, going back to the beginnings of the church, that there were periods in history where people questioned the nature of the church or Christ. The Arian is one of the most important, but there are lots of them. Sabellianism, Nestorianism, the church throughout its history has always had to face heresies. So, as, as the church grew, it became clearer on who Christ was and the nature of the church. That became a more established fact. I, um, my claim here is that one of the great accomplishments of the medieval church is that it slowly, painfully, gradually separated itself out from the secular power, the emperor. I think that's Dante's fundamental concern. It's, it's why the Guelphs and the Whites historically are so important because both of those parties saw themselves as gaining independence from the church so that if any of them chose to believe, it was a free act of the will. That was crucial to Dante, that was crucial to Milton as well. That nobody should be forced be because of political power to have a belief. That people should come to God freely. When people started using political power to force a man to believe something, they were overstepping their bounds. Um, but one of the serious questions that comes out of the Reformation is, can can corruptions ever justify changing dogmas, changing the nature of Christ? 
um, Luther, Calvin, Wycliffe, all of them denied the real presence of Christ as the Catholic Church taught it. Um, Luther's change was less radical. He believed in consubstantiation. We've already gone through that. But um, there's, a, there's a, a radical attack on the nature of the real presence of Christ in the, in the, in the Eucharist and the way that that affects people and how they practice their religion. Um, so, um, and we know that w what comes out of that Reformation struggle is America. That after all the you know centuries of people killing each other because of their religious beliefs, when the Puritans come here, a century later, when we break from England and make our constitution, one of the most important um, parts of our constitution is the protection of religious liberty. The, that the state can ever impose um, a religious belief on us that people should be free to practice their religion. So America, in some sense, is an outgrowth of all the struggles that took place there. Um, and the sacraments. So um, the Reformation, the Reformers questioned the authority of the church, and they took away the sacraments. So the um, priests were chosen by congregations, the apostolic chain of succession, the creed is broken, um, and um, marriage becomes a civil ceremony, and the, the, the stature, the status of, of, um, of a, a person's ability to, to make his own private will, the arbiter of things in his life, becomes really an established way of life, particularly here in America. We see that in the modern world when people can say, I can do with what, with women in the abortion issue, I can do with my body whatever I want, even if the cost of it is um, another life. So, so many of the confusions that we have today go back to um, both of these periods, back to Dante's time and then the Reformation. So I think that's as brief an overview as I can give. We've looked at the history, we've looked at the epic tradition, we've looked at some of the religious beliefs that have come out of the Reformation because it's closer to us in time. Have I forgotten anything? <laughs> I think those are the basic things that we've covered. The, the, ba the, the basic question that I have for you guys, and I'm glad to go anywhere, Anywhere, I'm going to turn this over to you guys. The basic question that I have, you've, we've looked at the history of both periods generally. This is not a history class, so it couldn't be the focus of our class. The class was two epics, one Protestant, one Catholic. You've read them both now. Um, um, I, I, maybe maybe I, I think I want to say this. I, want to, I don't want to leave this without. Both of them are epics. There's a tendency on the, lot, on the part of a lot of people to say, these are just stories. There's a couple of parishioners in the evening class who, who pushed that a little bit hard. These are just stories. You know, they're stories. They are. I've been maintaining all along that <coughs> lots of stories can have a prophetic quality. It depends on the depth of vision of the artist. But some artists see more deeply than others. And 
Shakespeare is one of those. Homer's, I believe, Shakespeare, you know, the people we've been reading do. They can help us see things about ourselves that other poets can't. And, and the really great ones not only help us see ourselves more clearly, they help us see our regime. Dante's writing on the commercial republic in its, in its inception. He's showing us the modern commercial regime. He's taking it apart. So I, you know that I've made this with Dante, Melville, Shakespeare have a lot to teach us about mod, modern America. Merchant of Venice, Othello are in the commercial regime. They're both in um, Venice. So there's a prophetic element to these men. They are stories, but both of these men were deeply committed to their faiths. Milton could not have been more Protestant. He hated the Catholic Church. <clears throat> deeply committed to Christ. Dante's very Catholic, deeply committed to Christ. So there are stories, but both of these stories are expressions of men who are not just writing stories. They see themselves in a prophetic line, that, that quality of the epic that goes back to the original poets. They see themselves carrying that tradition forward and helping us to see things that other people, other poets, can't show us. So my question is, when you look at these, and I'd like to try to keep it on the the epics as much as possible, I'm glad to go off, but um, what are the implications of these two poems for living our lives? What do they help us see about our faith? <clears throat> Paradise Lost, Divine Comedy. I'm glad to go anywhere, but that's my major question. Yeah. I, I have one, one question. The first time I read Dante, it was just the Inferno. And you know we've talked about if you if you don't get all three books, you you, you have no way of really appreciating the work. Right. So my my question on on Milton is, and and, and admittedly I, I I had to read it very quickly, but I did it specifically for this class. He wrote a second book, Paradise Regained. And I guess my question is, if if you <laughs> Look at that book. It's it's Christ uh, in in the desert for the for the forty days and forty nights, and and Satan trying to tempt Christ, and and it starts up much like Paradise Lost in the sense that Satan's talking with the other uh, fallen angels, and they all think, well, okay, it worked against Adam and Eve. It ought to work against. Christ too, or at that point the Son, yeah. and so he he tries, but as we all know, he fails miserably, and in the end, they're having this discussion of you know about how could I have possibly failed, and and the implication is is that much like the fallen the, angels had that discussion, yes, yeah. with, with Satan, yeah. and and the, and the the bottom line is is that Satan didn't really appreciate like when Christ talked about food. He thought about the physical food and not the metaphysical food, much like the disciples that followed Christ around struggled with. And so if you look at that Milton, I, I at least personally got a, 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 a different, different perspective than from Paradise Lost. And I'm just wondering if, I guess it's a question and you know this much better than I do, do we, do we lose something in Milton by not having you know, looked at both of those books? Yeah. 
I don't want to. I mean, that's. I don't want to go there, Fred, because nobody's <laughs> read it here. So, um, everybody. I mean, it's an impossible thing to take up right now. I'd be glad to take it up with you. On a night, no. you know, um, it's a, it's such a good question. Um, one, I mean, one of the. Let, let me just ask this briefly, and if you can keep it brief, because I really want to get stayed up with um, Paradise Lost and the Commedia. I've got to go back and make a point too. I just remembered. I knew there was something I forgot. If you were to characterize Christ in that work, right. how would you characterize him? To me, it's it's a it's a it's a very victorious son. I mean, he's not Christ yet, obviously. A, a, a very victorious in son. Paradise in, regained. In paradise regained. Yeah. Yes. It, 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 and and the, re the only reason I bring it up is... It, wait, go back for a second, because wait, hold on, this sure. is confusing. Christ in the desert is not the sun, it's Christ. The, the, the sun in Paradise Lost is the sun. We're in a metaphysical world. We get glimpses of Christ in the vision that Adam has at the end. Okay. So we know of Christ there, but we only know about him. But I, what yeah, you just I said just, was confusing it's, it's, to me. It's before the resurrection, I guess, was all I was trying to, to get at. Um, so it's it's we many don't fully realize yet what why Jesus is really here. Even the disciples, that was the only relevance there. But the, the point is is that we talk about Milton being so focused on the fall and deprivation, and yet in the in in the second his second book you get a totally different perspective that there is and, and when Adam, in the end of Paradise Lost, when Adam, it wraps up with Adam having the opportunity to look forward and seeing that in his greatest moment of despair, all is not lost. And it seems like he picks up with the second book confirming that all is not lost, quite, yeah. quite the opposite. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I, had we just read The Inferno or even The Inferno and Purgatorio and not having read the Paradiso, we would have gotten a totally different perspective from Dante too. And so I just wonder sometimes, and, you, and people don't talk about it. It's like he never wrote the book. It, it, it's, 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 and it's, it's like one-fifth the size of Paradise Lost, so it doesn't leave the same yeah. dramatic impact. Yeah. But anyway, it just I wonder sometimes if he kind of gets a bad rap to a certain extent. And I realize there still is a very big difference. C.S. Lewis has this to say about, I mean, this is I, this is such a difficult question because we haven't. Maybe we should read it together. I'm not sure, but um, in his um, summary on Boethius, when he's um, talking about this kind of taunt that the lady philosophy makes in the beginning of the work, in her comment about the rabble, um, frequently in that little short summary that Lewis makes of Boethius, he he talks about connections historical literary influences on these people, Boethius and Boethius and on Milton. And he describes Milton's um, Christ as infected with his contempt of the rabble. Those are Lewis's words. That, that That's why I asked if you would characterize him because I was wondering how you'd characterize Christ because... But that's I just... I, what I'd like to do is back off of that because we haven't read it together. Um, both books are self-contained. We can read them on their own. Paradise Lost isn't like the Inferno in one sense because it's a complete work. It has a, another work that can be set next to it, but um, 
we didn't do it in this class. Don, did you have something on this? Yeah. Uh, appreciate everything you've done here with these uh, classes and these works that we've delved into. Uh, certainly, um, one of the problems I have is uh, talking with friends and family. They know enough of this. I say the problem with America today is everything is superficial. Okay. No, there's no depth. You can talk to people about their political beliefs or their religious beliefs, but there's no depth there. They just repeat what they've heard, you know, uh, what their friends say, yes. what the culture is saying. Yes. And that uh, this has given us a chance to actually go into some depth in, in many of these areas. And uh, something I've tried to do all my life, but not everybody is <laughs> yeah. like that. And uh, yeah. it's frustrating dealing with, uh, like, my, my wife's family, my brother-in-law, or sister-in-law. You know, they're, quote, cradle Catholics, but you can't talk about any of this stuff with them because they don't know what you're talking about. I know. It's sad. People, people in the evening classes said, I mean, lamenting the, the same thing. I don't know what to say. I mean, it makes me sad because when I think about this, and, and the other thing, I mean, all the teachers who teach catechism in grade school and grammar, you know, junior high school, they're doing well, but you, you look at their education and realize their education was defective. I mean, they can't pass on what they haven't been given. The, the, for me, this, I mean, you're, you're speaking so much to my heart. My great concern, as you all know, is education. I really believe that we're failing it in public education. It's a joke. Catholic education should be better. It's turning into a joke. It's really upsetting to watch that the, that the richness of these traditions is gone. And exactly where you think there would be a home for it. Anyway, I don't want to. I don't get started here. I want to. There's. I knew I forgot. Here's the other thing I wanted to. Fundamental difference between. We went through this when I talked about the influence of um, Aristotle and Plato for both men. I want to go back to that right now because I made the claim that the Catholic Church rests. I mean, the Catholic Church is absorbed. Plato is everywhere present in Dante. Dante could not have done that work without Plato. But. Um, Aristotle is more fundamental and sounder because Aristotle can answer questions Plato can't. The Protestant word, word tends to look back to Plato, his influence of them. Milton went to a college in which Plato was the dominant thinker at that time. You can see Plato everywhere in his thinking. Let me just point out this one big difference too between the two of them because it goes back to the fundamental difference between Plato and Aristotle. Dante started with the common person. He started with himself, and he started with Beatrice. We had a fiery discussion a week ago on Monday, a week from this, last Monday, when one of the parishioners, I got a little bit testy with him. He's, his comment was, how did he put it? Beatrice is just this chick. You don't want to say that to me about Beatrice, because to me, she's not just this. It was a dismissive, you know, she's just this chick. Why does he make her so important? And the irony for me is I thought I'd been answering that question for two months. Remember, Beatrice is an ordinary woman. Dante's an ordinary man. Think, think about the, the young children who had the sighting at Fatima, is it? You know, they were nobody. And suddenly they have a mystical vision, and now they're important. You don't have to be important for somebody to take you seriously. Christ said, Prophet's not honored in his own town. The more we know somebody, the more familiar we are, the more we're going to take that person for granted. 
I really believe that prophetic things happen in our family. How many people are ready to admit it? If you, if you get used to seeing somebody around all the time, you're probably going to be more likely to say, take out the garbage <laughs> or you know, open the window or put that away. Or, um, I mean, familiarity breeds contempt. What Dante's showing, I tried to stress this, is each person is made in the image of God. We're, we're supposed to learn to see Christ in the other, imago Dei, the naturalite Christiane animus, the, the naturally Christian soul. Up the, up the paradiso, the closer Dante gets to heaven, the more and more people look like Christ. He sees the veil of Christ in Veronica's, or the, the, the imprint of Christ in her veil, sees Christ in Mary. She was, I mean, you're going forward. He's going back to beginnings. The closer you get to Christ, the more you're going to find him in every person. What Dante does is start with the ordinary person. One of the defining moments in his life was he looked at that group of women and saw in Beatrice an image of the Trinity. Explain that. We went through this. When, when Christ says, who do the people say I am? All the disciples and nobody can answer? Remember, we, I, this was such an important moment for me in the class. He turns to Peter and says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ? Nobody had said that before. And Christ, that's a taking of the auspices moment. You all remember what that means, the taking of the, it's an omen that needs a confirmation. Who confirms it? Christ. No, you didn't do that yourself, that's God. That moment establishes a divine aspect to Peter's office. When all the other disciples look at Peter in that moment, do they see anything but an ordinary man? No. Has he radically changed and become luminous? He's Peter. You know, I, I get tested when this guy, just, you know, why wasn't it somebody important? <laughs> because he's trying to show us that there are extraordinary things in, in our human nature. Sorry for, do, I, this is so important to me. I remember getting very serious about this when we went up to Paradiso. Because my, my last point for all of us was, the, what to me is one of the culminating points of the Divine Comedy. At the very end, Donnie wants to see the Trinity. He gets prayers and helps from um, Beatrice, from Bernard, Mary. He's looking really hard at these three circles, the three images of the Trinity, and then he strains to look at the middle because he knows the middle is not only the sun, but it's the sun with a body. Because Christ went back to heaven with a body. Now how in the world can any of us get our minds around that fact? And Dante, remember, I, I said that I think the Divine Comedy is in one sense a celebration of the human body. That nobody has done what Dante's done for the body. So did I strive with this new mystery? I yearn to know how could our, could our image fit into that circle? How could it conform? But my own wings could not take me so high. How can anybody on earth see into that mystery? That, the incarnation is the fundamental mystery of our faith. The incarnation. The sun taking on a body. Indwelling in a body. But my own wings could not take me so high. Then a great flash of understanding struck my mind, and suddenly its wish was granted. At this point, power failed, high fantasy, but like a wheel in perfect balance turning, I felt my will, 
and my desire impelled by the love that moves the sun and the other stars. He's returned to the natural order. But he returns having seen the way in which the sun, in all of his infinite divinity, has a body. And you know it's a transformed body. It's not going to be the body as we know it. And I, the argument that I made is if you go back to the middle of the Paradiso, who was the great figure? Solomon, who makes a defense of the glory of the human body. From that point to the end, we're, I think we're, we're intended to see that, that what's great about humans is we're human. No, I'm not kidding. We have body. We're not angels. We are not angels. When I start hearing particularly women, oh, my, my angel, I, I want to strangle somebody. We're humans, but we live in a period that so degrades the human body, just degrades it. Puritan on one side and seculars who do whatever they want with it. The great glory of man is our humanity. We're not angels. Um, so... What Dante did, and this this the point I wanted to get back to, sorry because I forgot. Dante takes the ordinary thing as the subject of his epic. He takes himself, he takes Beatrice, he takes Virgil. If you go through the Divine Comment, you find family members everywhere. It's a rich work. Some of them are in hell, some of them are in heaven. But the, you can't <coughs> read something without coming across ordinary people. They make up the world. Family members everywhere. Um, Milton? Satan dominates the first five books. And Adam and Eve's knowledge, I've gone through this because it's a little bit troubling me. Adam and Eve, what defines the way they know? Raphael. It's angelic knowledge. And there's that point that I read because I wanted to underscore it. Raphael makes a point of saying, this will be carried forward unconsciously in your posterior. What men are going to know is what I've given you today. The most important kind of knowledge for you is angelic knowledge. So the defining orientations for both books couldn't be more different. Dante starts with the ordinary thing. Because man is this glory God made him. We are made in his image. What makes us great is our humanity. How, 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 how glad are we for that today? We're not angels. We shouldn't even want to be. <laughs> and if that wasn't clear, Christ took on our body to redeem our nature. He glorified it. So in Dante's, there's this celebration of the human person. This, it just is affirmed again and in its most ordinary ways. In Milton, you've got Adam, think about this. Adam and Eve, are they ordinary? Absolutely not. We know Adam and Eve in the garden. Do we have any access back to that world in the garden before the fall? None. We don't know what it was like. He's presenting us an ideal image of it, which I think is extraordinary. My own feeling, you know, that I, this is a serious contention of mine, that one of the effects of the fall is the subject-object dichotomy. We tend to object, objectify others. I don't see that in Adam and Eve. Their love is beautifully expressed. There's a strain at some point because Milton has to prepare for the fall. You know when Eve has that dream, she comes out and says, I want to go off on my own. 
mean, you, you get a sense that there's a pride in her. That's pre-fall. It doesn't belong. Milton has to... But the, the, the condition that he's showing us is outside of our experiences. We don't know what that was like. He's imagined it beautifully, but we don't know it. So we're already starting with a condition that we can't, it's hard for us to relate to, and then he adds to it angelic knowledge. So our ori- the orientations of both men is radically, radically different. One's ordinary familiar, but he's showing something divine in it. The other is um, ideal. Um, and then problematic because the kind of knowledge that is so important to Mil- Milton is platonic, it's angelic knowledge. Um, so anyway, let me just, um, my, my, my serious question to all of you was, what do you come away from these things with? What do you bring? What are the, what are the implications? Do we, do we find implications in both works that help us to see something about our faith um, a little bit more clearly than if we hadn't read them? That's my question. I wasn't here, but can I ask you a question about, you were saying Dante strained to see in the Trinity in the Three Circles uh, the body of Christ. Is that what you said? Mm-hmm. Is that um, kind of a, where humans, our humanness, Christ is showing us that that's we're all invited to be part of that trinity. For sure. Except, I, let me make a qualification. Remember, okay. remember this word that I've used a number of times. Theosis, is that right? Theosis. The, the early church father used that word. Dante uses the word. Transhumanize. Remember when Dante, Canto One in the Paradiso, when Dante enters the heavens, he says we were transhumanized. Before the blink of an eye, they're off paradise and they're already in the sun, and they enter the sphere of the sun. We know, according to the laws of physics, that a body, bodies can occupy the same space. In the Trinity, they do. The, the persons of the Trinity lose nothing of their identity, even while they indwell. We know that the Son and Father perfectly indwell with each other. We had that wonderful image of Thomas where he said, the Father's not greater or less than the Son and the Spirit to show that there's this oneness that they share. It's, it's beyond our way of thinking, but we know that the persons indwell. They're perfectly one with each other. That's our faith. So when Christ goes back to take, remember, he's the Son, infinite, one with the Father, one in being, infinite, he takes on a body and becomes finite. (coughs) The one who made nature takes his part in it. All these paradoxes develop. Strength, power, weakness, all of them. And he's killed. He lets himself go to a cross. He's raised from the dead and he returns to the Father. So when he goes back to the Father, he takes back our human nature. The church fathers always used to maintain this, that Christ became human so that humans could become divine. 
that Paul uses the word adoptive sons that we are adopted, that our understanding is that we're not just going to go back. We won't go to heaven the way we are here. We get an image of that in the transfiguration on the mount, that there's going to be this glorified body that somehow, whatever the condition is in heaven, it partakes something of the divine. So there's this great glory being given to us as humans, particularly because of what Christ did. Um, so it's, you know, the, the, the tendency of the modern, I mean, there's two tendencies. One is um, man's depraved. We get that from the Protestant world. From the science world, we get that man is a collection of atoms. There's this subatomic world that's shifting and changing. And, but the human person, we've, we've just lost the sense that there is this glory to the human person in our world. It's, it's, a, it's not a kind world, I don't think. It's in the way that we look at ourselves. But Barbara, where are you on all of this? Oh, wow. What did you get out of this? And are there any implications to Paradise Lost or the Commedia? about for our faith? Is there something we learn about our faith? What did you take away from all of this? Two things. Um, from a practical and very distilled perspective. Um, one is that um, the mystical body and how we are all going to be part of it if we get to heaven. And so um, I'm just more cognizant of people's good things. Um, and the other thing is I'm more cognizant of virtue and um, I've even started looking up in the catechism different virtues and how they um, affect everything. And I, you know, you know that I don't have a lot of um, intelligence to do anything except to distill this into a practice. Away. Oh, BS. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'll accept that as a compliment. <laughs> but, but at any rate, those are two of the things that I've gotten. Yeah. My, I, you know, I would encourage you go back to the schemes that I gave you on purgatory. Okay. If you're going to take, I'm so glad, I'm mean, truly sort of proud of you to, that you would do that. Go back to that scene of the purgatory and look at Mary and the virtues because they're all lined up. I mean, that I think probably in some ways that'll give you more than the catechism will. Think about, think about purgatory and line the virtues up okay. and look at Mary because remember um, purgatory consists of those levels of sin, pride, envy, wrath, sloth, glut, avarice, gluttony, lust, and the goads um, for each one um, give the virtue, the virtue opposite the sin. And Mary is the first one in every example. So you get an example of the kind of virtue you want to practice in order to answer every one of those, those disorders. Before, um, even as old as I am, they were all kind of grouped together. You know, trying to be a good person means that I have virtues. But when you take them apart and you look at them, then you not only are aware of which ones you need to work on, yeah. but you're also aware of them in other people. And, and so I think I've gained a lot. Wow, good. 
so <laughs> I, I'm done. <laughs> Sue, what do you do? You have where are you? What do you? Well, I I'm sure you know that there are times where I look at your interpretation of um, Protestantism as being kind of limited or mm. putting everybody in the same box. But I've learned a lot because it has, um, maybe especially today, answered some of the things that I believe the Reformation got right. I mean, I look at the Catholic Church at that time period, and even now, um, and wonder how the authority granted the Pope can still be believed in over time. Not, I, don't, I don't mean the authority of Christ by any means, but I look at the manifestations of churches in general, you have to have a real long personal history to get past some of this, to get past the activities and the horrors that the church and religious name, whatever right. it is, right. has perpetrated on the human race. Yeah. Um, so I don't I don't believe in a private way. I believe in a very powerful, big, gracious God who's doing his best to help all of us and, and help us through direct intervention as well as through um, cultural mm -hmm. interventions mm -hmm. because sometimes the cultural gets it as wrong as the individual in my mind. And I, I guess I guess that's where it's I a fallen am. fallen world, for sure. Yeah, it, well, and, and not irredeemable. What? Not, I mean, it is you don't redeemable. Believe it? Okay, it good. It is redeemable. Good. I said not irredeemable, okay, which good. is a double negative. Yeah. It is redeemable, but we have to claim that. And that's an individual claim for me. And so, I, you know, yeah, I guess that is. It's not self-arbitrating, but it's my job to try to discern that good and work toward it and accept it in others and try to try to understand the best I can. Sometimes what worries me, Bob, the, the, well, I'll finish that sentence. Sometimes what worries me is that we make God too small. <coughs> that religion makes God too small. Like it can't be this because then my, then my or the church's image of God has to change. God didn't care about that. I mean, he didn't care about the image. So sometimes the rules get so, they become their own God in the same way that wealth can, in the same way. So that's what I worry about, yeah. that we make God too small sometimes. I agree too. Would, would you um, take that, go back, um, an inclination to make too, God too small, say, to, we put bounds on him. I, have, I couldn't agree with you more myself, but if you looked at both poets, Milton and Dante, with respect to just that perspective, what's your response? Does one do it more than another? Do you do it equally or what? Well, I, well, I think in these two works, because they are, um, they tackle such a different um, 
part of belief. I have never seen any explanation, except for Milton, and that's my limitation, I'm sure it exists, of why the fall. How come? God is all-powerful, God is good. Why were there warring angels? What the heck was going on with that? I've always wondered that. I thought that's a weird part of the Bible. Um, Dante doesn't treat that at all, really. Um, there, there's kind of an after effect, but there isn't that, that is not his central thesis. So Milton certainly is more limited in that way and doesn't give answers for a whole bunch of things. I was really thinking, and I may be unfairly answering it, because when taking your question but trying to apply it to the men, when I look at both men, at, um, I can't come away from their works without seeing Milton doing more of the sort of thing that you're talking about than Limited. Dante. Well, well hold, hold on, hold on. Just okay. that when you look at the father and son and their dialogues and the father's motive, I mean, it, it, it is there. I don't like that part of Milton. Yeah, anyway, so there's a, there's a, Dante doesn't show God, which I think is to his credit. When, when Milton does, as, as noble as he tries to make him, I, I think he defeats himself because the God and the Son are, they're not just very likable. And when, and when God speaks about the fall and what he's going to do, it actually leads modern people, it's led a lot of bright, bright people to identify with Satan because they, they think he's justified because he's, he's going up against this you know, not particularly likable God. It's, it's hard for me to come away from Dante, particularly in the Paradiso, and not feel vast spaces everywhere. You know, that we've entered heaven and neither nearness nor distance added or took away or... I mean, I, I, what he's done in his rendering of heaven to me is... Ex nobody's ever done what he's done. In no, I, I guess that's what I'm saying is he's... His story's different. I'm not saying it's just a story, but his, his whole thesis, his whole purpose is a different story than sure. Milton's. For sure. And I don't think all aspects of Milton, I don't certainly don't agree with it. It's an interesting way of describing the original fall, as well as Adam and Eve. Um, kind of Adam and Eve to me in that are almost well, not an afterthought exactly, but a, you know, and what's coming next sort of a transition. Rather than the for me, what was interesting was the story about was the story about how this might have started, and at least in Milton's view, how the angels were the fallen angels were defeated. But in the same way, to me, well, the story of Dante in breaking it up into three parts and. Um, the view he has of the inferno and the whole concept of purgatory are things that are, I find, not completely what I accept, because you know I don't like a lot of hierarchy. I think God is God. So, We've got, I'm sorry. No, no, I, I know you've got to because I want to I want to try to leave time for it. Don, did you have, and I'd like to hear from Debbie too. A couple too, of things, uh, um, you know, Founded on Protestantism, so to speak, and about the. Uh, it's not founded on, but it's certainly. But 
Protestant spirit in lots of ways, yeah. yeah. But basically, when I look at religion in the United States, it's about 50% Protestant, 25% Catholic, and about 20% or a little bit more um, nuns, N-O-N-E-S. Mm -hmm. These are people that... Does everybody I'm understand what he just said? Explain nuns, Don. Nuns are people that don't affiliate with any particular... Non-believers. They're called, I, and I just came across that. They device. may be uh, fallen away Catholics or fallen away Protestants or atheists or agnostics, but they don't belong to any, right. or associated with right. any particular right. religion. And then there's about 5%, you know, Buddhists, uh, Muslims, uh, Hindus, uh, you know, uh, Jewish people. Uh, they're a very small minority. But when you get down to Protestant and Catholic, all the surveys that I see, the Pew Research and all that, when they poll people, and I don't know if this is a reflection of a culture or the fact that most people that identify as Protestants or Catholics are, you know, nominally mm -hmm. that. They all have similar um, responses with regard to contraception, abortion, divorce, remarriage, you know, right. uh, that there's not a whole lot of difference in their thinking. And I, as I said, I don't know if that's a cultural thing as opposed to a religious thing. So even though there's fundamental differences in uh, religious beliefs about transubstantiation, about sacraments, about you know clergy versus mm -hmm. uh, you know uh, people that the parishioners can hire and fire at will. Um, and I've done a lot of uh, research in other religions. I just finished a book called Why Buddhism is True, and it relates to uh, when I was reading book two of Boethius today. I said, yeah, a lot of this is similar to Buddhism. <laughs> what they think, how they uh, believe. And I've done research into the Tao and, uh, and other uh, religions. And uh, there's some truth in all religions. Um, there's some commonality in all mm -hmm. religions, but uh, there are also very specific differences in their thinking and their beliefs. Yeah. Just, um, I, I really want to hear from you guys. I hope everybody knows that Christianity is sui generis. What? Sui generis. What's that? To itself. Now I'm saying this really serious. C.S. Lewis has written about it. I mean, good. Sui generis means in itself. The the danger in a in an ecumenical world is to find a common ground, but very often when you go to that common ground, you leave out essential differences. Christianity is sui generis, a a, a religion to itself in this sense. No other religion is based on a man who says he's God who came down, took on men's sin, died, and went back to heaven. That's Buddha, nothing in Buddhism, not Confucius, you, Hindu, nothing, Judaism. Either, either, either that guy was nuts, absolutely insane, or he was God. And if he was God, it makes Christianity a, a religion very, very different. And it's interesting in America, I was going to, I, I, I wondered if you had a response to what Don said, but I want to get to, um, in America, culturally, we tend to water down a lot. And it seems to me that lots of Catholics today become sort of Protestant in their minds. It's a serious question. If, if we believe Catholicism is right, it's a serious question how much we really b live our faith, because that faith would set us apart in lots of ways. Even if when we go out into the world, we're, cordial and sociable and you know but but there's a fundamental difference in what we believe and there's a fundamental difference in what in between us and Calvinists or Lutherans but Debbie what's your response to 
Um, I was I made my first communion. My parents divorced, and I was raised a lot of different things. And so when I became 19, I just wanted to know what was this Catholicism, what was true. And um, because when I came back, and I started reading a lot, you know, first I'm, you know, going just that whole aspect from maybe it was aliens to, you know, which one of these guys had the truth. And I, I read a lot to, like, um, to find out about the different religions and stuff. And when, I can't remember where I read that, but it's, you know, like we can all have like a box of crayons and the teacher says, get out your purple crayon. And somebody gets out red and somebody gets out blue and somebody gets out green, you know, and they can all truly believe that that crayon's purple, but this doesn't make it purple. And that's where I, you know, so, you know, so it's, to me, I crave for truth. You know, what is truth? And it became, you know, to me, I mean, What, and then all of a sudden, thinking back to about you know the, the levels of heaven and the happiness and stuff to Red Square, that all fully happy, but some of us have the size of a thimble or a cup, and some of us has the size of a barrel, and you know, but all you know truly perfectly happy. Can take away? Can you any comments on Dante or Milton? Your responses to either or both of them? Um. You know, well, what Sue said about the angels being tested and stuff and not seeing why, were they not outside of heaven for a bit and they were tested with a vision, I read this somewhere, a vision of Christ as the baby. Lucifer said, I will not serve. Is that part of that? I read that from Anne Catherine Emmerich, who was mm -hmm. the mistake. No, we get those passages, those um, soliloquies of Satan when... He's basically saying those words. I can't remember saying. Better to serve in hell. Better to rule in hell. Yes. Than to serve in heaven. Right. There's a number of passages that that the mind is its own hell. I mean, he. There's a number of places oh, where yeah, we yeah, get into yeah, Satan's yeah. mind and no. as a drama that are pretty powerful. I think. Um, but I mean, I can see that you know, as we are being tested, and this is our pilgrimage, the angels were also. Shafali, do you have, where are you on all of the, anything? No, come on, no, not going to let you off here. You had no response to any of this. Did you like Milton or Dante? Dante, yes. Why? Well, I, I liked both of them. Mm -hmm. um, but I agree with what um, Barbara was saying about the virtues in purgatory, learning from them and how to uh, be a better person and kind of shed some of those virtues. Vices. Oh, vices. Yes, don't <laughs> shed those virtues, <laughs> God. But yes, um, so. Francis, I want to go to you first because oh, okay. we just don't hear from Well, I, I looking at Satan in both of them, um, that always kind of, you know, when I'm glad we read Paradise Lost first because that's, you know, that Satan is really pretty awesome and you you know you think oh my gosh nobody can conquer him right so then you go to dante and you see him as not this this strong that you can conquer him so that gave me a lot of a lot of faith that there is hope that you can in everything um so i took away from that you know feeling much better and i do like 
you know, Dante, and, you know, I think the whole concept of purgatory gives you kind of a, a uh, hope, too, okay. that it's not just up or down and no in-between, right. because we've been kind of taught that you, your soul needs to be cleansed before you can go to, to heaven. So that gave me a lot of lot of faith. So I think it strengthened my faith. But I'm glad faith, but I'm glad we read Paradise Lost first because that one just you know, like I said, I came away with that Satan thinking, Well nobody could I mean, it was just really he was so powerful yeah. and such a yeah. you know, force. Yeah. It's really important to remember he comes to nothing in that book. So and Milton's gotta know that. But but when I read it seriously, one of the thoughts that I came away from it with is I was, um, I think I was teaching part-time at Angelicum. It just was helping out. It's a homeschool program, and I think they were doing Paradise Lost. And it's a Socratic dialogue program. So <clears throat> and I remember saying to the students in the class once, you, you look at Adam and Eve as these noble creatures. They're made in God's image. They're so attractive before... Eve has her dream. I mean, they're just beautiful to behold, and um, noble and good and gracious and um, and seemingly invulnerable. You put Satan next to them, and they look like rookies. I mean, there's no way to because you know what's going on. There's no way with all of their gifts they're going to be able to withstand this guy. It, um, it, it's just important to see the, the extraordinary power to him, even though we know it's going to. I'll come to nothing, yeah. but um, but it's really important to see that there's no way Eve or Adam, no way. I, you know, every once in a while I'll, I'll say I don't remember what the, I don't remember. I can't remember the context, and but I can remember a couple of times in my life saying to somebody, "You don't want to tempt Satan. You don't want to fool around with that because it, to to fool to have the arrogance to think you could." You have no clue what you're up against. That if we don't see Satan as the fallen, I mean, the, the great light of God turned away with all those powers. One of the things I love about Tolkien, you can't come out of Tolkien without <laughs> realizing you're dealing with near omnipotent forces. The forces it is, it's all going to come to nothing, but you minimize Satan or play around with that, you're, you're tempting things in yourself that you're going to make you're going to make dangers in yourself greater than they should be by playing around with them because you're dealing with something too great. Well, and the other thing, <coughs> I, it's to me, it's very sad to see what could have been that one Christianity instead of all these religions splitting up because of the corruption that went occurred in the Catholic Church and continues. That makes me very sad. Yeah. Because I mean I'm a cradle Catholic and I would not change religions because of the sacraments and the basic doctrine. But to see what it could have been if there was It was always was, it's always been there. Oh right? I know from the very yeah. Yeah, I mean when you look at the early church heresies to, it's just so important to put that in perspective. It's never been otherwise. You know, I mean, my, my response, I mean, one of the things that came out of this with real clarity for me was corruptions can never justify changing dogmas. You, you can't, you don't answer corruptions by changing a dogma. You don't, you don't change the nature of Christ or the real presence or, um, 
those things were won out of battles in you know the first six, seven centuries. Centuries, the church has never not been embattled. The corruptions have always been there. You can't you you can't use corruptions to justify changing the basic truths. You change those, and then what can't the church become? But it's sad to see what right. Happened. No, I know. That to me is is you know I guess the Pollyanna that everything should be perfect in, in the world, and sad One of the great, that. one of the great fa um, consolations for me, because I think you probably know, I'd be probably more critical than a lot of people about this, because I believe we've got to live these things. But one of the sources of strength or trust for me or consolation is, I, I know the Protestant Catholic worlds overlap in lots of ways. I believe they don't touch at the center. I believe that center's Catholic. But we overlap in so many ways, and in that sense, there's so many areas in which we share a common ground, um, where Protestants are so serious about Christ. You know that there's a goodness and a strength there. Um, so whatever our differences, and they're real, there are still, particularly I think between the fundamentalist and Catholicism, that that, that you know we take Christ very seriously. So there's this strong bond we have there that's important to always be glad for. I think. Lois, did you have anything? Oh gosh. Okay. Um, <laughs> I've learned so much in this class. Um, for me, uh, Divine Comedy was much easier to read. It's more poetic and flowing and easy for me to read. I'm not a Really well. <laughs> um, and uh, Paradise Lost was harder, um, and you know everybody's commenting about the darkness of it and whatever. I agree with that. Um, I don't know how to put a lot of that into words yet, but um, I've learned a lot differences between Protestant and Catholic, which I think I knew. Um, the history that you're bringing out in these classes is just making me want to go read history stuff now <laughs> because I didn't ever put together what was happening at the time that the poets are writing this stuff. I, I just never got into it, so I find that awesome. Um, as far as the differences between everything that everybody's commented on about the differences in the gods and the devils and whatever. Or, um, I, I kind of agree with <coughs> most of it. I wouldn't contradict anybody. Um, and I don't know, for me, I, when I've grown up, God has always been God. And my Protestant friends believe in the same God as I do. They just go about it different. And one thing that um, back in college, I had six different roommates. All six of us had different religions. I always went to church on Sunday. Um, that was uh, no matter what. And um, I started asking, you know, can we go with you? And I go, yeah, sure. <laughs> and then I said, okay, you've all been to my church. I'd like to go to yours and see what yours is like, you know, whatever. And um, so we did the Ram Robin thing, but everybody came back to my church. And they, they liked the ceremony, you know. It's always the same. It's family. It's welcoming. It's you know, whatever. But 
my comment back to them was, my God, it's your God. Uh, but this is how I choose to honor and one of the things I find myself, um, even the Pope, I think, said it, you know, our God is the same as the Hebrew God or the Islamic God, and my response to that is, no, it isn't. I mean, the God for the Jewish people and for the Islamic people is solitary and alone, and we have a Trinitarian God, and Christ came out of it. so. Very abstractly, at some remove, you can say we all have the same, but if, I mean, there's, it's what, in fact, one of my concerns about Paradise Lost, you know, is when God said to Adam, why are you so concerned about being alone? I'm isolated. And then we saw those exchanges between him and the son that have a little bit of an Aryan aspect. The Christian, the God of Christianity is a Trinitarian God. He is social by nature. He is not alone. And I, and I think it's sometimes we just forget that. And I, I just think if we're made in his image, we're Trinitarian to our core. We were meant to, to know somebody and be known, to love somebody, to be loved. That, that's in our DNA. Um, but Fred, what do you, where are you? On? Well, I'm, I'm glad we did both works. And you know, I, just, I, I just give you credit. I think you've done that extraordinarily well throughout the whole experience. I mean, you, do, you, you can't really appreciate until we have faces and the Merchant in Venice unless you've seen Moby Dick. I, you know, it's just that you don't really appreciate the light until you've seen the darkness. I mean, you, you've got to have that contrast, I think, to really bring clarity to any one given work. And um, in terms of Dante, I think I think one of the big walkaways for me was, I, and, and I, as most people know, I mean, I've spent a lot of my time in the Protestant world and a lot of my time in the, in the Catholic world, and I, I think I kind of had this focus of there's Christ, and it's just that one image of perfection, and we all have to work toward that singular perfection. And sometimes you get frustrated because, you know, I'm never going to get anywhere close right. to that. And the thing that I thought was interesting that came out of the Paradiso was that what we're really working for is that unique perfection in ourself that is a function of the gifts that, that God gave us. And for me, that's, that's inspiring and, and refreshing because... You know, I, I know I'm never going to be a St. Thomas or any of those folks, but maybe I don't have to be. You know, I just have to be the best that I can be with what gave me to work with. Yeah. And Fred. so that was a big walk away for me. By the way, for any of you who may not have remembered, I, I was so grateful for Fred's comment. I told him afterwards how glad I was for it. I can't remember. It may, I think it was Sue made some comment and and I don't remember now what it was but I remember Fred's response because he's his response was wait wait by the way I want to go back first of all I, I, I think I've said this in the class before I think all of us carry two wounds one of them is from our fall the other one is from not being able to love as Christ does I, I don't know how anybody can take him seriously and not feel that wound because 
the more you long for him, the more you're aware that he's God, that we have a fall, and we want to keep doing that with all the frustrations that it leaves us with. So I, I think there are two wounds. On that particular exchange, I don't remember what Sue said, but Fred, the way he often does, just spontaneously said, that's good. Um, he said, that's a reason for being glad, or it's good, because he said, that means I don't have to be Thomas. Because what he was saying implicitly was, there's been this struggle to try to be something he's not, and suddenly it's as if he, in that moment he said, it's good being who I am to try to, I don't remember the exact comment, but I remember at the time thinking, bless your heart, what a good, do you, anyway, he's just re reiterating what, but, but then, go ahead. Anything else about the two men or the two poets or the epics or, I don't want to press oh, there's, anything there's for There's a lot, but yeah. you know, I, I take that more than my fair share of the time. Oh. So. Bev, you haven't or Bev, you haven't been here a lot. You do where where did you Oh I have Do you have anything here. to offer? Unfortunately I just haven't had the concentration to read in the last What's the matter months. with you? Why haven't you been reading for the not, last month? Not even a frivolous novel. I just can't can't concentrate. But uh, uh, ever since the beginning, all of the works that we've done have given me a deeper appreciation of my faith and the knowledge that I can do better and the tools are out there for me. All I have to do is grab onto them. Make sure you use them too. Yes, oh use them, yes. And I'll tell you, going into major surgery like that, you realize that if it's through the grace of God and the prayers of everyone here and there and everyone, I mean the, I mean, the tear up now, I couldn't have made it without those prayers and without God watching over me, and more importantly, watching over the surgeon. He <laughs> <laughs> was watching over both of you. We were all glad. We were all glad. Okay, Boethius, next week. Okay. By the way, just to let you know, the history that we've been talking about, there's an interesting history going on there with Boethius and the church, the Aryan conflict in East and West, it's all there. It's going to blow up. It's going to blow up five centuries later, but the divisions between East and West always there. So the kinds of conflicts and fighting and killing, you know, has been there forever. Anyway, it's going to be there with Boethius. And when we start Chaucer, you all know that the pilgrims are going to go to St. Thomas' shrine, and he himself was murdered because of political differences with the English king. So. This history has never left us. It's always here. Put Boethius on the timeline with Dante and Milton. Where is Boethius? Boethius is what, 7th century? 6th century? 7th century? Late 400s to early 500s. Yeah, 6th century. It's good to see you again, Don. See you guys. Next week. Have a good week. You'll be here Monday. You know, I I will too because I realize we're going out. Of, we're going up to Missouri to see my daughter Thursday. So see you Monday. It's great to be back. Thank you. It's good to see you. Yeah. <laughs>
Why does this thing not come off?